Romans chapter 1. Listen as I read for you, uh, beginning in verse 16. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Let us pray. Lord God, it is our desire this morning as, as we consider the things that we do out of your word and even your own providential purposes as they unfolded at times in history. God, our desire is not to look to men, but truly to look to you. And I pray that this time that we spend in your word together would be very profitable. God, I ask that you would please help with this time. Grant that I should speak very plainly and very clearly and only what your word says. Lord, grant that everyone who is here, we ask, would be able to hear and you would grant them an increasing knowledge and growth and clarity with regard to what you have shown concerning yourself and your purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here this morning is our Reformation celebration. It is the, uh, that time once a year. Now generally when most people think of October 31st, their minds are probably moving towards candies and costumes and other sort of associated things. Um, but for some of us who have at times looked at church history and studied and seen what God has done, October 31st often for us bears a striking remembrance to a work of God that he really began to thrust forward in that day um, that began to change the scope, the tapestry of Christianity as it was expressed. When, when we look at uh, uh, Christ coming, and when he comes in and reveals himself to be the son of God, to be the Messiah, it, it, it was a remarkable transforming event that, that brought the centrality and focus of everything that the Jews had been waiting for. And here was the fulfillment of them, the Messiah, the Christ, the salvation. Here he is, Jesus. And yet, many of them, looked at him and refused him, looked at him and rejected him. They did not follow. We could even go so far as to say what is factually, historically true, fewer followed him than did not. Even though he had shown himself to be powerful, uh, manifest himself so remarkably distinct in the miracles that he was doing, then the demonstration by telling people, I'm going to die and rise again, and then doing so. Not, not, in a, not in a secretive way, but on occasion where he appeared to more than 500 people at once. So that it wasn't just a, an obscure group of people trying to fashion together a myth that would manipulate people. Jesus was who he said he was and proved it. And, and that brought about for those uh, who by grace recognized that and apprehended that a total change of their whole life. It was no longer Judaism. In the course of time, it would be initially negatively referred to as Christians and Christianity. That's what they were accused of being in Antioch because they understood the centrality of their faith in the God of the Old Testament, the God of the scripture, indeed the God of the universe. The centrality of that and the hope of salvation all comes under one head 
and in one name. Indeed, the fullness of the revelation of God really comes to us in its most understandable expression in that person, Jesus Christ. Now, as time goes by, something goes awry. And that often happens, doesn't it? Because as the apostles go forth teaching, they teach so wonderfully and clearly, specially endowed by the Spirit of God to declare the teaching of Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes to them, reminds them of the things that he said when he was with them, so that those men who had been especially marked out by Christ to be apostles, their words would come as direct commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone else... No matter how spiritual, no matter how prophetic, no matter how influential, everyone else had to acknowledge that what they said, what they did, what they thought, what they taught was secondary, subservient to the authority of Christ that came through the apostles' teaching. Now, we also have that same apostles' teaching. We don't any longer have those apostles present but we do have their teaching by which we can test everything now as time went by slowly and slowly and sometimes quickly people began to introduce alternate opinions and I want to be clear this wasn't only in the course of time while the apostles were still on earth while they were still ministering and teaching false teachings were being propagated. I mean, we're studying 1 John in the Sunday school hour, and what John is so, so laboring to deal with is these false teachers who are misleading and confusing people right there during the time of the apostles. Even we're going to take the Lord's Supper uh, uh, after the sermon, uh, the, the key passage outside the Gospels that kind of directs us to that and explains it to us is in 1 Corinthians. And everyone will always say, if only we could be like the church of the first century. And they say that like it would be fantastic. Things were bad in the first century. We, we actually are remarkably privileged because we have the totality of the word of God in our hands by which we can know and test everything. The book of 1 Corinthians is written to deal with all kinds of problematic errors, bad behavior, egotism, jealousy, misunderstanding of spiritual gifts, abuse of the Lord's Supper, wrong, 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 but bad, bad, bad. Really, and so it, it, it isn't that we've got to learn. We're not looking to replicate an era or particularly imitate a people. We really have to be and must be looking to Christ. In the course of history, though, there came a season in which the basic truths of the gospel over time became so unavailable to men. The translations of the Bible were done into Latin as Latin be became less and less the language of influence and less and less the language of education. A a as time passed by, fewer and fewer people knew what it meant, what it said. They did not have publishing houses as we do now. You could not purchase a Bible. Texts were not available. Printing press was not yet developed. And so people were in somewhat of a limited situation to understand what is true, what is not true. What does the Bible teach? What does the Bible not teach? What are we to believe? What is not to be believed? And there, the, the problem is, the only way they could get what they should do, what they should believe, was by what was told to them. And if what was told to them was not true, they had no means of not knowing that. And so, it, it, you know, it often starts that kind of thing, a small step. Nobody called us on this. A, another step, it's still working. And along the way, people began to work through and you put councils of men together and whenever men are, mistakes will be made. 
This is just the reality of it. And so it, men together, they would get together and discuss what makes sense to them. Originally, it was beautiful. The early councils would take and they would search the scriptures to see what they would say. And they would sit there and say, look, it may blow our mind, but the Bible says that there is one God, but that one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Son is not the Father, but there aren't three, there's one. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, the early councils wonderfully said, what we are to do is faithfully articulate what the scriptures say. And by grace, we believe that. As time went by, more and more confidence in men's minds, men's ability, men's opinions, and they begin to add other things. This is how it should be done. This is, that is how it should be done. Such that by the time that we come into uh, the year 1517, leading into that year, many things had begun to be done. Beautiful cathedrals were being built magnificent structures I mean such that when you go and visit them even now you're in awe of them but someone has to pay for those things and so in order to pay for those things money has to be raised you know you send around a voluntary offering there's going to be limits to it you send around something that has some advantage to it and all of a sudden, you get more people involved. You'll get more people contributing or participating in a raffle or, or a lottery than you necessarily will in, all right, so there's no, no chance of me getting back anything monetary from this gift? There's no, there's no oh, wow. Uh, you know, the, the excitement of possibly getting something. And so what they began to do as they had... Uh, confused more and more what happens when a person dies what happens when a person lives they began to develop theories that when a person dies they don't go they don't go to await the judgment or go to the presence of the Lord but believers who might die they could have had and may have had some unconfessed sins or they may have found that their righteousness not enough compared to their wickedness didn't balance out didn't cancel out didn't work and so they would have to go to a limbo, a holding place. Now, if we, I say limbo, you're thinking of somebody arching their back under a stick. So don't misunderstand. The, 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 there's another use of the word limbo, right? A, a, a temporary purgatory is another word for it. And so here would be the idea. You know what? Almost everybody has to spend a little bit of time there. It's like a short-term hell. And your mama's there right now. Cry. Can you imagine her crying out to you right now? Son, help me. Son, help me. Well, guess what? You can. For a reasonable donation, we can get your mama out of purgatory and send her on up next to God. I mean, well, I mean, what loving son or loving daughter would not do that? I mean, the, the catchphrase became, what was it? As soon as... Money in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs, you know? And, you know, I guess children could recite that and clap their hands, make a song out of it, but it doesn't make it true. You can have a, uh, songs can be made about anything, it doesn't make it true. And the Bible never taught that, and somehow that money could purchase the forgiveness of sin, utter nonsense. Into those kind of things, there was a, a young Dominican monk who was looking at these things and the, I don't see this in the scriptures. In that same time, there was a, a Catholic uh, scholar named Erasmus who was working hard to recover the Greek text. And there began to be more and more uh, men studying the Greek text, the, the more original representations of the scripture than the translation into the Latin Vulgate. And they began to recognize, wow, the translation completely missed it here. They also began to recognize, I can't find these things anywhere. And so some of it, they began to ask, what's going on here? Well, yeah, you don't see it there in the Bible, but there was a council back in, blah, 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 what? 
And they decided, they decided, but where did they get it? Well, there was a papal bull, which is not what it sounds. Again, a, bu a bull, you've got a different image in your mind. You know, you're thinking of a red cape and, and somebody running around a matador. Not that. A papal bull is what? The Pope's edict. And so he was also able to say, all right, this is true. And people could say, where'd you get that? I got it. He claimed to have the same authority as the apostles did. Now, I, I dare say that this, Paul said that if anyone doesn't acknowledge what we write to you as a command of the Lord, he should not be acknowledged. So if somebody is putting themselves in that same plane, it is a dangerous position. And so what happened in the year 1517 on All Saints Day at 2 p.m. in the afternoon, Martin Luther, having struggles with the Pope's abusive authority, the councils just recklessly coming up with things the Bible doesn't teach, he wrote 95 issues, challenges, concerns that he had um, that really didn't revolutionize a whole bunch if you read those 95 theses. But what they began to do is challenge the underlying authority and position of the church and the church leaders and so he walked up and at castle church in wittenberg nailed 95 theses on the door and that was a public call to answer for what you're doing and that began to change things and not only 1517 uh, a little bit later in 1521 there was all this complication, so we're first we're looking at the historical, then we'll move into the theological and the biblical. I don't usually do this, so bear with me. You know. uh, in 1521 was the Diet of Worms. Again, that's also not what it sounds like. Today's a day where a lot of things aren't what they sound like. This diet has nothing to do with what you will eat for nourishment. It actually is an imperial council. It's called by the emperor uh, uh, to test something, to check something, to, to look into something. And in this imperial council, you had Pope Leo X, and, and then you had uh, Emperor Charles V, and you had uh, Prince Frederick III, and all these names with numbers that sound so important after them right and, and they gather together and, and they're discussing these things and particularly they're approaching and they're challenging Martin Luther who, who, who wrote those theses and who's, who's growing in his knowledge and study of the scripture to recognize so many errors being uh, put out by the church and he's challenged and into that event we have his response when he was unwilling to change his position. Now, some of it may or may not. Uh, there, when you read it in different places, it will read differently because he didn't say it in English, okay? That's the main reason why. So whoever your translator is, is, is going to present it slightly differently. And there's, there's one phrase that we can't authenticate as original that people love so much but the principle is nonetheless in it. He says at that conference, or at the Diet of Worms, he says, unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures. I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience my God help me amen what's been added subsequently is that here I stand and I can do no other which is also wonderful, and that principle is very clear within what he said. It would be a, a nice summary of what he said, but even the here I stand and I can do no other is a little deficient because it's not here I stand based on him, but his conscience was bound and captive to the word of God. 
And how can the Pope be the new word of God guy when this Pope comes along and says, from now on, and then the next Pope comes along and says, by the way, that no more, from now on, right? And, and say, wait a second. So this guy who supposedly speaks for God, his word changed the way we do things. A new guy comes along and he cancels what was a word from God and now gives a new word from God. This is crazy. Well, what's weird about it is most of the people just would do like this. Uh-huh. Yep. That was good. This, what? And then, and then as, as time goes by, in 15... Uh, 25 Luther will then write a response Erasmus the Catholic uh, developer of the Greek he's been doing his particular studies and, and, and establishing some of the essentials of Roman Catholic theology and he writes what at that time became a popular treatise that was called on free will to which Luther in 1525 will write a response to that called on the bondage of the will. That the will of man is a slave to his knowledge, a slave to his desires, a slave to his appetites, a slave to his understanding. If a man doesn't understand those things, there's nothing that he can do about it. I mean, if you were to take a, a man from a remote village that doesn't know anything of electricity, doesn't know anything of how all that works, and just tell him, look, if you want light tonight while you're staying in this room, just flick the switch, and you go away. Now, you've said this to him, right? Does it make any sense to him? He's going to go all night without ever flicking the switch because, one, he has no idea what you're talking about. You know, to, you go to the wrong season and the wrong place and, and, and a parent says, I'm getting the switch. And it means something very different than, than a light switch. Right? And so uh, this person, you could tell him, look, if you need light, if light was there, why didn't you turn on the lights? What are you talking about? Everything you're saying makes no sense. Are you, do you not want there to be light? Uh, yeah, light would have been good. Then why didn't you turn on the switch? I don't know what you're talking about. This whole switch thing you keep saying makes no sense to me. You know, and even then, you, it makes sense to you to just flick it. But what would they do with it? Hit it? Push it? Throw something at it? They, what it is even to flip the switch won't even necessarily make sense. Uh, a person's decisions and actions are so affected by their desires, their understanding, our, our nature, our capacity, our affections, everything. And, and what uh, was argued by uh, Martin Luther regarding the nature of men is what does it say about men? We are dead in our trespasses and sin. We are blind. No one seeks after God. No, not one. There is no one who understands. Ah, so if nobody understands, then how many are going to get it? Yeah, none. So what do they need? Understanding. And the scripture tells us what the son came that we might have understanding and then through the preaching of the gospel the spirit comes and gives us understanding so that we know him and are found in him and believe in him. And so when we begin to look at these ideas and it's going to be tough because on the idea of the solas there are five main principles that undergirded the Protestant Reformation. These are things that had been lost, set aside in favor of looking to men and looking to traditions. Five crucial things were recovered in the Protestant Reformation. Those are called the five solas or the five pillars of the Reformation. And we're going to consider those horribly briefly. Okay? I, I, because I've 
been in conferences where we, we have three days to unfold each of these solas. I've been in conferences where the whole conference was dedicated to uh, one of them, not, not even all five of them, okay? So I'm going to do a, a woefully incomprehensive job. Hopefully not incomprehensible. Now, hopefully it'll make sense, but it won't be all there is to say. It won't be exhaustive. All right. Uh, but the first principle that really began to undergird the Reformation and began to stir him up was sola scriptura. What the Bible says. I don't care what this guy says. I don't care what this guy says. What matters is what the Bible says. Now I will say this. The Bible can be misrepresented very badly. But the principle was what the scriptures say alone is trustworthy, alone is true, alone is to be believed, alone is to be practiced. In other words, it's not an ear here and an ear there. It is really rooted in the scriptures alone. Uh, uh, to get a sense of this, um, when we look at the scriptures, for example... Uh, when God begun, begins to give the law to the children of Israel, those, those communications as God is delivering his requirements to the nation of Israel that he's made his own, within that context, he begins to set forth that principle of distinction and authority. That his word is distinct from anyone else's word, and his authority is above anyone else's authority. Okay? That's the problem that had happened in the, in the Roman Catholic Church. They had begun to put a man at the top of it rather than Jesus and an organization at the center of it rather than Jesus through his apostles in the word. What is that basis of authority? Well, with regard to the children of Israel, for example, he would say to them, these words Deuteronomy chapter 4 I'm going to go really fast you know this will eventually be available on the website so if you think I've misrepresented any scripture you can listen more closely and look it up for yourself because it's unlikely you're going to get from text to text as fast as I do because I have them pre-printed all right Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 2 you shall not add to the words I command you I wonder what that means. No, I, that's one of the beautiful things about God's word. It's often very, very clear. Now, it's not always desirable. It's not always agreeable, but it's often very clear. Do not add to the words that I command you, nor take away from it. So, what do we do? You stick with what? He gives nothing more, nothing less. You can't say it any clearer than that. But apparently, the children of Israel would struggle with that. And maybe all mankind throughout the rest of history. And so he says it again in chapter 12, verse 32. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. Okay. In Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 and 6, God's word says this. Every word of God proves true. Do not add to his word, lest you be found a liar and he rebuke you. Yeah. So now it's, it's not just a matter of, it's anything that's added, anything that's extra, alters. Because our minds are not his, and our ways are not his. And so when you put things in the hand of man, what do you get? Fractured churches. So many different denominations. A world full of opinions, right? And of course, into that context, it, it, and of all of them, we alone are the right ones, right? That's what everybody thinks, 
You know, and I, I will say this: we're not right. God alone is right, and so we have to continually say, "I don't care what I think. I don't care what I want." What does God's word say? That takes a lot of work. You know, that takes a lot of humility. And and the more you approach the word of God with that humility the more arrogant you're going to look to everyone else. <laughs> because when you're saying that uh, the, the word of God says, the scripture says, and that's what we've got to continue to go back to it and say. Um, not a small amount of the scriptures, and, and many of us know that by the time you get to the end of the Bible, again, mostly related to that particular prophetic book, but in its location, it's still it's consistent with what we saw in Deuteronomy, consistent with what we saw in Proverbs, is that same kind of notion that says, look, I warn anyone who hears the book of this prophecy, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues of this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share. That principle continues to go throughout. Don't add. Don't take away. Now, in, in the context of don't add and don't take away, it really comes with this clarity. In Romans chapter 3, verse 4, it reminds us of this. Let God be found true, though every man be a liar. So when you begin to say, I can't trust my own thoughts. I can't trust my own feelings. The only one who knows God is God. The only one who knows what happened in the origins of the universe is the one who was there. Everyone else is coming after the fact. And they establish their theories, and those theories then become, to most people, as long as they're a consensus, they become fact. And what's amazing is if you look at it long enough, those facts continue to shift and alter. And this discovery has a, has have us rethinking these conclusions and this uh, on and on and on. But it's not just some of the scriptures. Because so, let's let's be clear here. I'm not aware of any group that calls themselves Christians who say this: we don't care what the Bible says. I mean, if they did. I, I, I would hope people would leave immediately, right? So no one actually is going to say that. But what sometimes happens is people, they they have, and groups have attached their affections to their favorite portions, their favorite parts, or their favorite passages. And not the whole scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture way more faithfully than a man interpreting Scripture. And so it is taking all that the Scripture has to say, and that's why Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. We're not staying with the positives. We're not staying only with the desirable. We're not staying with the delightful and the encouraging. We're not going to avoid those either. There's nothing wrong with the things that encourage and, and help us out. But that's not all that the scriptures have to say. And so, uh, so often today, the God of love and the God who is love, and I dare say that when we consider God, there, there is no love that matches or measures the majesty of God's love. No love of, that we've ever experienced that comes close to the love of God. But that's not the totality of God. And so when you go to passages that say God is a jealous God, some people have, well, <laughs> that's not true because God is love and love is not jealous. There we go. Done. Love envieth not. So we were able to cancel out the uncomfortable verses with our favorite ones. Yeah. No! We can't cancel out anything with other ones. We have to carefully study to understand how they work together. Because all of God's word proves true. And actually, if you're only looking at part of it, and you think that that part represents the whole, 
you could be in big trouble because that part doesn't represent the whole. I mean, uh, one, one simple thing w- would be like this. You tell somebody, okay, you, if you stand on this platform or on this bridge and you jump off, this bungee cord will keep you from hitting the ground. Well, that's only part of the information. You should probably add, you need to connect to the bungee cord. Because if it's not connected to a harness on you, you're in trouble. I mean, it's part of the truth. The bungee will stop you, but it's not everything you might need to know at that moment. You may also do well to know, I need to be harnessed. I need to be connected. There's a few other pieces that make that work. That without that consideration, I just might get hurt a little bit. And I might be understating that. All right? Be aware of this also. Galatians 1.7 says this. Of those who are coming into the church at Galatia. That, that there is uh, not another gospel. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel. So they come in. They come in with the Bible. They'll come in with a lot of wonderful words. They'll come in on with a lot of things that sound pretty right. But it's a distortion. So we've got to be careful. So the, the gospel can be distorted, and distorted is not accurate. We're also told in 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, Peter writes and says, look, in verse 16 and following, there are things that Paul writes with the wisdom given him by God that are just hard to understand. And so what happens when those hard things to understand are written? He tells us this. There are things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant that is the untrained the uninformed and the unstable twist to their own destruction and so what are they doing they're not coming and saying okay close your bibles we don't want to have anything to do with that they're not saying that they're saying open your bibles and let me twist it for you No, they're not saying that. It would be nice if they would, because then we'd know in advance. What they're doing is saying, open it, and listen, let me tell you what it means. Take my word for it. I'm special. No, 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 but that's not acceptable either. The the notion that I always hope to present is, it is my passion and responsibility and a sense of, of requirement before God that I communicate accurately and faithfully what God's word says. But I tell you this very clearly, do not believe it because I said it. Doubt it. Challenge it. Go to the scriptures and seek to confirm it. Now, I don't want responsibility for leading you astray. So take that responsibility on yourself. Now, I do my best and I pray that God would constrain me from error. If if there are places of uncertainty, I often will say this. I don't know. This is a hard passage. It could mean this or it could mean that. But regarding the heart of what we want to understand, thankfully we have this, this, and this passage that are very clear. So even though this, these ones could go one of two ways, we know what is true because the scriptures don't leave us one verse to teach it or one passage to teach it. And that's why the scriptures tell us in Acts chapter 17 of verse 11, as Paul and them traveled down to Berea from Thessalonica, it says that they came there and that the Jews in that place were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica. They received the word of God with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. That's what, that's what we really want to be done. Here is what I am convinced the scriptures teach. Search them. Examine them. Get after it to see whether or not these things are true. It's so important that uh, he goes so far as to say this in Galatians 1. In Galatians 1 verse 8 and following, Paul says it in the strongest possible language. He says, If we, or an angel from heaven, all right, so someone shows up shining in the night, glowing 
in the dark and speaking with a wonderful, melodic, powerful, maybe there's an echo to every word he says. Uh, That doesn't mean it's right. He's going so far as to say, even if we, even if I was to come to you again, and if I say something different than I said before, get rid of me. Kick me out. I should be accursed for that. Uh, I'll read exactly what he says. If we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. For we've said before, so now I say to you, if anyone is preaching a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Because here's the, here's the reality. Am I seeking the approval of men or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I am trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, the gospel that is preached preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. I received it from revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the distinction of the scriptures from everything else. They received the message directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what we also have received by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is where we stay. This is where we stick. It's not enough to be zealous. It's, not, it, it's dangerous to get caught up in tradition. The Jews of, of Jesus' day were caught up in traditions. He tells us in Mark, he says, look, by your traditions, you make void the word of God. So we've got to keep going back and studying. Now, some of you right now are maybe looking at your watches and thinking, that fella said he was going to give five pillars, five things, and it seems like he's hopefully almost finished with the first one. And yet, what's going on? Well, let me, let, me, let me lay this out very clearly. Everything else, every other aspect of uh, every other pillar stands on this one our understanding of the means of salvation our understanding of how that works our understanding of grace and faith and the eternal purposes of god they all stand by throwing out traditions throwing out opinions and searching the scriptures to see what they say so the other ones will likely flow pretty fast all right So the warning in Colossians, see to it that no one takes you captive to philosophy or empty deceit or according to human tradition or the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. There's all kinds of other things that are going to captivate you. You know, philosophy, men's logic. Well, uh, one plus one plus one does not equal one. So I can't believe the Trinity. Well, that doesn't work. Not all logic and syllogisms necessarily come to accurate conclusions. You meet someone and he's from, let's let's say, California. All right? And that, I can say that because I'm also from California. Okay. And he has straight hair. Jason is from California. Jason has straight hair. Therefore, people from California have straight hair. Is that right? Um, well, the, the first two are right, but the first two don't demand the conclusion that's drawn. But what if you get a second person in there? You know, you got Jason and Bill. You know, and now, now there's two people from California with straight hair. I mean, it's getting pretty clear. Isn't it? Or is it not? It's not. Tragically, a lot of people interpret the scriptures like that. Here's a verse. I know what it seems to say. And I know what makes sense to me. I'm drawing my conclusion. I'm moving ahead with this. Wait a second. Your conclusion is absolutely clearly contradicted by 20 verses. Yeah, but I, I love, you know, this. When I look at it this way, it just blesses my heart. All right, I, I don't know what to do with that. I can't, you know, I, I'm glad your heart was blessed, but yikes. 
you know? And so here come all these warnings. Now, b- built on sola scriptura, we, m- we move into to the other principles. I'm gonna uh, move through them very quickly, quickly, more in a declarative way, in a conviction that the scriptures declare these things. And really, the next one I wanna look at is sola gratia. A lot of people put them in different orders. We're just gonna look at it like this, sola gratia, which is by grace alone. I can even ignore the, the Latin if you prefer, but by grace alone. We are not saved by our works. We're not saved by the church. We're not saved by absolutions. We're not saved by Hail Marys. We're not saved by lighting candles. We're not saved by pilgrimages. We're not saved by anything, but by the grace of God alone. Now, what's, what the challenge of these solas is they each say alone. And yet there are five of them. <laughs> and so wait a second here. Are they alone or are they together? Well, the, the, the principle of grace, what's, what's amazing is where grace alone is present, faith alone brings salvation. That faith is grounded and rooted in Christ alone as the hope of our salvation and as our righteousness. And all of this is designed for and works towards the glory of God alone. Okay? So I kept saying alone, but, but that's, it, it's to pair off other options to keep other things from being added, unnecessary ancillary incidentals that do not belong. We are saved by grace alone. Um, Really, for this, just look with me. Uh, For grace and faith, we'll just look in Ephesians 2.8. Really, let's begin in Ephesians 2.5, because it kind of goes back to that... uh, that statement or that issue of where we were at before we were saved. Um, It's interesting that uh, it was the statement of uh, Luther that if any man doth ascribe even the very least of salvation to the free will of man, he knoweth nothing of grace and hath not learned Jesus Christ aright. I don't know why all the hath and the doth was in that phrase, uh, because I know Luther wasn't saying it like that because he was speaking German. <laughs> but it sounds weightier when you leave that in the quote, so I'm going to leave it. But the, even when you were dead in your trespasses and sin, all of these people who are now saved in the church of Ephesus, where, what were they when God came to them in the hearing of the gospel and saved them? What was their condition? They were dead in their trespasses and sin, you know? And what happened? While they were there, while they were dead in their trespasses and sin, much like Lazarus in that tomb, what did Jesus do? He he brought them life. While you were dead, he, God, made you alive in Christ Jesus. Lazarus came out of the tomb willingly, Right? He exercised his will to obey, come out of the tomb. But he only did that after what? He was willing to follow Jesus after he was made alive by Jesus. He, he, his will could not have exercised obedience to the call to come out or to the offer to come until what? He was made alive. And then when he made alive, how long do you think he wants to hang out in that tomb? How long does he want to stay in the midst of the death cave? No. Get out of there. Go to the one who brought me life and rejoice in him and glory in knowing him and engaging with him. While we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Oh, wait a second. This is by grace I was saved. So there's no place for faith? No, faith is what is imparted to us by the grace of God. It's not, it's not something that is inside of us and we kind of place it where we will. 
as those dead in our trespasses and sin, God by his grace, and well, let's keep reading, raised us up and seated with us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages he would show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us who are in Christ. Listen to verse eight. For by grace, God's unmerited, you totally did not deserve, earn, or warrant it in any way. Better people than you, relatively speaking, have not been saved. Worse people than you have not been saved. Better people than you have. And better be, worse people have also. So it's not anything about you or me that made the difference. It is completely the mercy and grace of God alone. And he'll have mercy on whom he'll have mercy. And he'll have grace on whom he has grace. He'll have compassion on whom he will have compassion. It is all at his discrimination. And listen to what it says. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Ah, so faith. Uh, not a random faith. The faith is, is, is an understanding an apprehension, a trust, a wholesale acceptance that transforms your life based on the gospel truths that you have heard. It's not a faith that I'll be okay in the day of judgment. It's a faith that God is who he has said he is. Christ has done what he has said he has done. All those things revealed are true. I believe. And so by grace, through faith, and about this faith, what does it say? And it's not your own doing. What? It is the gift of God, not of works. The reason why we call it grace alone through faith alone, it's not of works. Works the works that you do and the works that I do, even now, after salvation, they don't contribute to or earn our salvation in any way. Our salvation is all of grace, comes to us through faith, and our righteousness is all of Christ. Our acceptance with God is all of Christ, not of anyone else. So so here we were, dead in our trespasses and sin. The gospel is proclaimed. Remember, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And here we were, dead in our trespasses and sin. We heard the gospel. The Spirit of God came up on us, bringing us spiritual life and faith. This grace of God bringing forth faith where the truth of Christ that has been declared to us becomes the very core of our life and our hope. Indeed, in that moment, by faith, we are made a new creation in Christ Jesus. And so all of our boasting, all of our hope is all in Christ, all in God, all in grace. And even then, we don't boast in our faith that I believe. We say, I was dead and he made me alive. Faith was not my own doing. It is the gift of God. But oh, that gift gets after it. That faith works so zealously. That, that, so the, the challenge that often happens, so you're saying that somebody is saved by grace and through faith and they never have to do anything? Well, I mean, I guess hypothetically, yes, but that's not gonna happen. When someone is saved by grace through faith, they are going to do a lot. They're going to repent they're going to believe. They're going to no longer live for themselves, but, but for the one who gave himself for them. They understand that, that, that their life is no longer their own, but for Christ who, who has given them life. And, and everything is completely transformed. So that I would go so far as to say the works of the one who have faith are going to be more manifold than the one who is working to earn favor. I said it how I wanted to say it. I couldn't repeat it if I tried, but hopefully you're listening. So by grace alone, 
through faith alone and it is in Jesus Christ alone. Romans 3.24, staying in, we are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as the propitiation. So we could go as far as Acts chapter 4 verse 12 and, and ask this question. Is there any other name given among men by which we will be saved? And the answer is no. It is only through Christ alone. In the gospel of John chapter 14 verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So the world says, there are many ways. There are many gods. There are many opinions. There, there, there are many theories, many postulates, many ideas. Much that men will say. But the scriptures say what? We know this. The scriptures alone are the authoritative word of God. They were not given to us by man, but God by his own power manifests them. Now, if we wanted to, we could look at the historical documentary evidence and we would see the scriptures, they distinguish themselves from any other book that man has in terms of the documentary witness, the veracity, the authenticity. It, it's stunning. If somebody was to set out to set one book so remarkably apart from and above every other book that ever existed, they would do it just like has happened because the historical documentary evidence for the scriptures are so powerful. Combined with that, we have the prophetic evidences. When you look at the things predicted and not just random things, not the, the nonsense Nostradamus things where, you know, he, he says, you know, uh, one night it's going to be dark. Hey, that happened. Uh, uh, come on, that's ridiculous. Anybody can say that. It's not the random horoscope fortune cookie. It, it, it could mean this, it could mean that. Nonsense. He will say, who? Cyrus. He will say, where? Bethlehem. He, uh, I mean, there are things in, he will say, when? 70 years in captivity. I mean, there are things stated with remarkable, indeed uncanny precision that bears beyond probability. And so we have this scripture, and it is this scripture that says, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And all of these things are designed what? Re read Ephesians chapter 1. To the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace. They are all designed. Everything Romans 11 is from him. Through him. And to him. To him be the glory. It's all his. Even in the end, we see that he did all of these things in order that he might show to us the immeasurable riches of his grace so that for all eternity, we were, are going to sing and be astounded by his glory because the grace that has been afforded to us is beyond our me measure and comprehension. These are those simple pillars and principles, and I would have loved to have done a lot more in a longer time, but so just remembering them, scripture alone, through grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Those are the five pillars, and that's what was recovered in the Reformation. The scripture is the authority for everything, and the, the subsequent points, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, were recoveries, not not glory to the church, but to him be glory in the church. A restoration of these key truths that the authority of man had subversively set aside and that a commitment to the scripture restored once again so that our hearts, our hopes, our eyes, our love are set all upon him. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your word there is no doubt and it's astounding when we look at the religions of man 
men have never come up with all of the forms of, of men's religions will have images that look like creatures and yet you give us no image. They have understandable gods and deities but there is so much that you reveal in your scripture that, that goes beyond our comprehension that sets us humbly with the grounds of faith. Lord, and we know that we believe these mysteries that you have revealed only by grace. That this faith has been granted us, given us understanding because of your rich mercy. We take no credit and no glory. And we also know that those people that we love, those people that are in our lives, our co-workers and family and such, that don't know these things. Arguments can't get it done. Debates and reasoning can't get it done. It is through faith alone. And that faith is a gift of God. And so Lord we say, and we look to you and we say, open eyes, enlarge hearts, give understanding to minds. Set us free, set people free from philosophy and uh, captivity, from false knowledge and uh, confidence in men. Grant that they would know that you are true and you will in the end show yourself and prove true and glorious. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.